Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Many people know the most famous speech about outer space. JFK announced a new ambition for humanity with Cold War swagger. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Still kind of gives you chills. But almost nobody is familiar with a statement by Richard Nixon just 10 years later that marked the last time humans left the moon, and which was the end of the Apollo program. This may be the last time in this century that men will walk on the moon, Nixon said, and he was right. But space exploration will continue. The benefits of space exploration will continue. The search for knowledge through the exploration of space will continue. And there will be new dreams to pursue based on what we have learned. Since then, NASA, other nations, space agencies, and private companies have done interesting and important things. Building a space station, launching satellites, sending rovers and spacecraft careening around the solar system. But no human has left low Earth orbit. And right now, the banner of human spaceflight is being carried by billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and of course, Elon Musk. So let's take a step back. What should the future of space look like? Are private space companies an improvement on the NASA of yore? And why are we sending humans into space anyway? Joining us this morning are G. Scott Hubbard, director of Stanford Center of Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation and the former head of NASA Ames Research Center. Welcome. Good morning. And we have Emily Lakdawalla, a science communicator and educator and author of The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, How the Mars Rover Performs Its Job. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Um, Scott Hubbard, for the real future of space exploration, how do you see Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos' recent space adventuring? Well, they're a major milestone in what's called space tourism, and uh, they're a part of the space ecosystem. Uh, NASA and governments, I think, will continue to be at the pointy end of the spear, going out where there's no return on investment. But I think you're going to continue to see a growing uh, trailing edge of commercial entrepreneurial space uh, where you have offers to people to take that uh, quick ride to the edge of space. And of course, uh, companies like SpaceX selling goods and services to NASA and others. Yeah. Emily, how do you see it? Well, there's a lot of reasons to go to space and there's a lot of space. I think that near earth space is going to be, you'll see increasing commercial space endeavors in 
the farther reaches of the solar system, it's still going to take uh, very expensive spacecraft, um, but getting cheaper because spacecraft will be getting smaller, they'll be getting more of them, and more of us will really be able to participate in the excitement of exploring other worlds. Yeah. Do you see Elon Musk's SpaceX as being sort of fundamentally different from the Bezos and Branson adventures? Uh, Scott Hubbard. Um, it's not that different than what Bezos and his company Blue Origin have announced. Uh, SpaceX is out in front. They've already provided commercial cargo and commercial crew to the International Space Station. And of course, uh, SpaceX is building something they call the Starship down in Texas. Bezos, when he uh, created Blue Origin in 2000, nobody knew about it until 2003, said that he was going to have a suborbital business case and an orbital business case. The suborbital he just demonstrated with a rocket called the New Shepard, but he's got another one coming along called the New Glenn, where he proposes to do orbital services. Um, Richard Branson, by comparison, as far as I know, is pretty much focused on the business case in low Earth in, uh, and suborbital tourism. Yeah. Scott, can you kind of describe the different sort of areas of space, right? It's not all just space. There's stuff that's kind of close to it. Can you just sort of lay out, you know, how far away are, are those different places from, you know, us here on the surface? Well, space has uh, four or five different identifiable sectors uh, or reasons to, to be there. Part of it is national prestige. You see the Chinese government pretty much following our uh, Mercury, Gemini, uh, Apollo playbook and just landed a rover on Mars, which is a real badge of accomplishment. Then you got science that Emily referred to. That's my favorite part. Uh, I'd like to know if life ever emerged on Mars and the rovers and Mars sample return are gonna help us do that. And then there's other things like return on investment, um, communication satellites, uh, earth observing satellites, uh, places where you can, in fact, build a business. And that's what uh, Branson and Bezos seem to want to do. Mm -hmm. um, one of our listeners, Benj, uh, writes, it's popular and fair to dunk on billionaires who play astronaut, but I see their push for commercial spaceflight as a generally good thing. There should always be a role for NASA, though, and I hope it gets more funding in the future. Emily, um, do you see the, the private space push as being generally a good thing? Oh, absolutely. I think as a taxpayer, anytime that you can replace something that a government is doing with something that a um, for-profit organization um, is able to do routinely, like bring astronauts and uh, supplies up to the space station, the private company is always going to do it cheaper and more efficiently. And so I'm really happy to see the transfer of that kind of role from NASA to the private sector. And there's always going to be a role for a government agency in pushing the boundaries in attempting things that haven't been done before uh, and having to invent whole new technologies. It's always going to be expensive, but the technologies that they invent along the way will get into the private sector and get used to improve our lives back here on Earth. So it's never an either or, it's always a both and. And um, I'm, I'm very happy to see private companies taking over this um, suborbital and low Earth orbit role um, and letting NASA do the things it's better at. 
We're talking about space and where what the future of space travel is with Emily Lakdawalla, science communicator and educator and author of The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, How the Mars Rover Performs Its Job, and G. Scott Hubbard, director of Stanford Center of Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation and the former head of NASA Ames Research Center. We want to hear from you, too. Elon Musk recently said that space represented hope for a lot of people. Is that what space represents for you? Would you want to visit space, and what would you want to see? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can always email forum at kqed.org. We, in fact, have a private uh, space company CEO with us. I'd like to welcome Chris Kemp to the show. He's the founder, CEO, and chairman of Astra an Alameda-based company that is working to make access to space more affordable for commercial entities. And he's also the former CTO of NASA. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks, Alex. And uh, good to see you again, Scott. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased to note that Alameda has its own space company. And I first have to ask, um, are you a billionaire? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, and it's exciting that entrepreneurs average entrepreneurs can start space companies. And I think there are about a dozen space companies that are set to go public uh, this summer, uh, all mostly working on satellites and actually all mostly here in the Bay Area. Oh, wow. So where is your facility exactly? We are in the old Alameda Naval Air Station. We have a 20-acre campus. Uh, We've actually been renovating a lot of the buildings where the Navy used to maintain uh, jet aircraft. And we have a quarter of a million square foot design and production facility where we manufacture rockets. And we've repurposed a lot of the jet engine test cells to do uh, rocket engine testing, uh, of which you know we've performed thousands of engine firings over the past few years. But you're not launching rockets from Alameda. I mean, that would kind of be awesome, but I assume you're not doing that. We are not doing that. Uh, we, we take them up to Alaska right now, and we'll be launching them in Florida as well. Oh, God. So um, what is Astra's sort of pitch? Like, why, what's different about Astra than other rocket launch companies? Well, Astra uh, goes to space to improve life on Earth. And we believe that space is really the ultimate high ground. It's a place where we can uh, really create a healthier and more connected planet. We have hundreds of companies now building small satellites that give us new visibility into our environment, our atmosphere, our weather, navigation, communications. Uh, You've seen SpaceX with their Starlink project uh, connecting billions of people uh, to the internet uh, is a a vision that uh, that team and and also the team up at Amazon with the Kuiper project have. Uh, I think there's a, a huge opportunity to improve life on Earth from space, and that's our focus. Yeah, and so you're just going to be sort of in uh, uh, in orbit around the Earth because you're you're focused on on our planet. That's right. Yeah. In fact, the closer you are to Earth, uh, the better you can see it. Uh, the uh, the faster connectivity you can provide. And also uh, debris is much less of a problem because the earth has its own garbage collector gravity. So uh, when you run out of fuel, you simply turn into a shooting star and you, you're recycled right back into the earth. Yeah. When do you anticipate you're going to launch your first rockets? Well, we've launched several already and we had a, a really successful flight in December of last year uh, where we reached about a 380 kilometer uh, Apogee, and we will be launching this summer our first commercial payload, and we'll begin monthly launches later this year, uh, where we have over 50 launches under contract right now. So we have a huge backlog right now. Um, many startups, we're doing a number of 
uh, launches for NASA and other government agencies. And uh, we, we pretty much can't make rockets fast enough and get them launched fast enough. Wow. So from what I've heard of your plans, um, you're hoping to be at daily launches um, by 2025, I think? That's right. Yeah. Um, and at a, at a recent uh, hearing of a subcommittee that works with the FAA, uh, Representative DeFazio up in Oregon worried that increasing space launches needed to be meshed with uh, the FAA's normal commercial flights. And I just, I just want to listen to him for one sec. And I am not in favor of telling... Uh, people uh, in America who are traveling for pleasure or for work or family emergency, whatever reason they're on a commercial airplane, oh, sorry, your flight's going to be delayed or mm, you're going to be an hour and a half late and miss your connection uh, because uh, some um, millionaire or billionaire is going to experience 15 uh, minutes of weightlessness. Uh, that's not right. Do you worry with just more and more launches by more and more private space companies that, that this regulatory regime and being able to sort of integrate with the rest of our commercial airspace? <laughs> well, you know what, I would, I would agree with that comment. And if you look at the flight plans of both the, the Blue Origin and the Virgin Galactic uh, flights, you know, they basically went up and they came right back down. And I, I don't think very many uh, air uh, line flights were were affected, but 100,000 airplanes take off every day, and we figure out a way to do that. I think if there were one rocket launch every day, it were added to the 100,000 airplanes that take off every day. We have the technology uh, to to make that all work, and uh, you know I think it is a concern. We don't want things hitting each other, but um, it's you know it's billions of cars drive around and on one plane on Earth every day, and they don't generally. Um, collide with each other at intersections because we have traffic lights. And we just need to implement these kinds of uh, standards in space, and I think we'll be okay. Um, Chris, last question before we let you go. I've heard you argue that there's strong analogies between the sort of early PC industry um, and the space industry as it is now. Um, can you spin out that analogy a little bit more for me? Well, if you look at most of the companies and startups today, they're building satellites from scratch and uh, they're building constellations from scratch. And I liken this to the Homebrew Computer Club here in Silicon Valley in the 1970s and 80s, where you have Steve Wozniak types putting cir you know, circuit boards together and, and really custom building everything. I think what's happening in the space industry today is like what Apple and Dell did in the PC industry, where we're going to have uh, you know, PCs effectively, uh, where you can plug in things and load software on them and then, and then put them in space, which will dramatically act uh, increase uh, the amount of innovation and uh, lower the cost of uh, solving problems in space. And we're seeing the dawn of this new space tech industry right now. Thanks. That's Chris Kemp, founder, CEO, and chairman of Astra, an Alameda-based company that's working to make access to space more affordable for commercial entities. And he's also the former CTO of NASA. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. Cool. Thanks, Axel. I want to add um, a caller into the conversation here with Emily Lakdawalla, science communicator and educator and author of The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, How the Mars Rover Performs Its Job, and G. Scott Hubbard, director of Stanford Center for Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hi, welcome. And uh, hello, Scott, and hello, Emily. Uh, great to have you both on the uh, forum and, and have this fascinating conversation. 
so I'm at the, the SETI Institute here in Mountain View, California, and of course our, our charter is, is searching for and understanding the nature and origins of, of life and intelligence in the universe. And uh, as, as Scott said earlier, we think um, questions of this nature and space exploration more broadly are, are hopeful endeavors. Um, I have a question that's a little off uh, base from, from our uh, targeted work of, of SETI, and it's more about rocket propulsion, and I'd be interested to hear the guest's perspective, you know, talking about how rocket propulsion, chemical rocket propulsion has transitioned from NASA and government-funded endeavors to private industry, which is wonderful, and it's now where it belongs. Um, but what I'm not seeing is much work uh, at, at NASA or in government-funded arenas for next-generation propulsion technologies. You know, the, the farthest we've gone uh, is just to the edges or just beyond the edges of our own solar system with spacecraft we've built. If, if the New Horizons, our, our fastest spacecraft going in a straight line, were to head to our nearest neighbor star, Alpha Centauri, it would take 17,000 years to get there. Um, so the scale is, is impressive. What's happening or what do you think should be happening with respect to uh, developing and advancing new propulsion technologies? Bill, that's a great question. Where is our warp drive, um, Emily Lakdawalla? How do you uh, how do you think about these propulsion technologies? Well, of course, there's a couple of propulsion technologies that are already being used in government spacecraft, and also in uh, at least for orbit adjustment in uh, near Earth space, which are uh, solar electric propulsion, where you have some means of generating um, a, a large amount of electricity and then using that to power. Um, ion engines, which are much more efficient, but have much less thrust than chemical propulsion does. It's a lot more efficient, but you still have to carry along your own propellant, which means that it has a limited lifetime. And then the other technology is solar sailing, which has been demonstrated um, by uh, the Japanese with a deep space spacecraft um, called Icarus, and also by the Planetary Society with their uh, solar sailing spacecraft, Cosmos. And um, uh, and so on. So anyway, the, there are other technologies. Solar sailing is fantastic because you can just use the sol pressure of um, solar photons hitting a big sail to accelerate you to high speeds and, and get you to other places. The big challenge is that once you've accelerated to a high speed, unless you want to fly past your target extremely fast, you have to be able to slow down as well. And so there's uh, lots to be done in developing um, the kinds of control technologies you need for deep space, communications to really tiny satellites, because for solar sailing to work, you need very small mass spacecraft. But um, those, those things really are coming along. And I think that um, now that they've been demonstrated, we will see them penetrate into um, the private uh, market and see them getting used more and more and miniaturized and made cheaper. And, and I expect we'll see a lot of development in that area in the next 50, 50 years or so. But I'm looking forward to what Scott has to say about this too. Yes, Scott. Yeah, the, thing that I, the thing that I would add is that uh, both DARPA and NASA, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency that uh, does things that are way out on the horizon, and NASA have in the current budget uh, funding to look at nuclear electric and nuclear thermal propulsion. Uh, in fact, there is a proposal by NASA to do a type of a mission that would get to Mars very fast with people, stay only 30 days and come back very fast, but to do that looks like it needs something like these technologies that were examined decades ago and then set aside. So uh, we'll see if that develops. We'll see uh, if it indeed can do the things that people have claimed for it. Yeah. 
We're talking about the future of space travel with G. Scott Hubbard, director of Stanford Center for Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation, and Emily Lakdawalla, a science communicator and educator and author of The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, How the Mars Rover Performs Its Job. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, Forum's book club launches today. Our first book, Masaya Montoya's novel Preparatory Notes for Future Masterpieces, tells the story of an aspiring Chicano painter with grand ambitions. We'll talk with Montoya and you about your reflections posted in the hashtag ReadWithForum. Learn more at kqed.org slash forum slash book club. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of space travel with Scott Hubbard, director of Stanford Center for Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation. He's also been called the Mars Czar and is the author of Exploring Mars, Chronicles from a Decade of Discovery, and Emily Lakdawalla, a science communicator and educator. Um, we also want to hear from you. Elon Musk recently said that space represented hope for a lot of people. Is that what space represents for you? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. So I want to read some comments, and then I'm going to bounce them to you, uh, Scott and Emily. Uh, David writes, we haven't been the best stewards on planet Earth. What makes us think we'd be any better stewards in outer space? Kent writes, is there an an environmental offset possible? Does an amusement ride for billionaires justify the environmental cost of the 200 to 300 metric tons of CO2 emissions of rockets using conventional fuels or the damage to the ozone layer? How many miles must Tesla vehicles be driven to offset 200 to 300 metric tons of CO2 emitted by cars with gas engines? A listener tweets, get these guys to pay taxes, talking about billionaires, and it would finance NASA for decades. And I think one of the things I take from these uh, comments and others, you know, the, the discourse online, is that there are more things here on Earth that need to be done. Climate change, there are environmental effects of the rocket engines. People are hungry. There, there's, you know, there's a, a panoply of problems here on Earth that could be dealt with. And so the question I want to pose to you, Emily, is why do we go to space? Like, why, why space? Emily Lactua? Sorry, there's a uh, problem with my microphone. Um, So I actually want to back up and answer the environmental concern questions because um, I'm so delighted to hear people asking those questions about the environmental effects of going to space, not just on Earth, but also in space. We are... uh, approaching a lot of, you know, untrammeled um, lands on other worlds, and we don't know if there's life there or not, and it would be the height of your responsibility to, um, you know, uh, mess things up for any life that was there before we had a chance to discover it, and even, you know, 
even not discovering it, we wouldn't want to destroy things for life on other worlds. So I'm very happy to hear people having concerns about that and the concerns about the effects of a few people making the choices for all of humanity for how we are going to treat these worlds that we haven't explored yet. So um, I'm very here for all those conversations. And so it's a good question, why do we uh, explore space? Um, why do we need to go out there at all? Um, I think that the, the answer that has to do with exploring deep space, the challenges of meeting technological challenges that have never been overcome before, and the new things that we develop and learn along the way that benefit life back here on Earth. There's a whole website devoted to um, the kinds of ways that NASA technology developments have benefited us. You can go to spinoffs.nasa.gov and see uh, in, in really just about every arena you can imagine how um, NASA developed technologies benefit people here at home, a lot of medical technologies and, and other things. Um, we also go to space because we want to see new lands we want to explore and we can go there and, you know, take only pictures and, uh, and, and leave nothing else behind if we really want to. And then the nearer space, we, there is a profit motive. There is a reason that people might want to go space and do mining on asteroids and such. And I think that we, it's good for all of us to have conversations about what is acceptable use of these previously unexploited areas and, um, what perhaps we should leave, um, untouched. Scott, for you, what should the goal of space exploration be? Well, I think the primary goal from my perspective uh, is to understand uh, life in the universe. Uh, I was fortunate enough to help create NASA's Astrobiology Institute that's devoted to that topic. And between rovers on Mars, Mars sample return, a trip to Europa, uh, the moon of Jupiter that looks like it has an ocean under an ice cap, all of those types of missions uh, help understand whether or not life may have emerged elsewhere. I think this is a fundamental question for humanity. But beyond that, uh, Emily did a great job of listing the other pieces that constitute this space exploration ecosystem, uh, if you will. And uh, one to add in that uh, I think our our uh, friend Chris is going to be working on is launching uh, satellites that have the ability to monitor what's going on in climate change. Uh, there's been an explosion of small satellites that do this very, very critical function, along with the, the uh, satellites that uh, NASA has launched uh, over the years. And then backing up at this, this long comment that was made earlier, I would say that from the NASA point of view, um, which I was with for decades, that's 0.5%, half a percent of the federal budget. And I think that's a reasonable investment in exploring space. Um, and if an entrepreneur like uh, Jeff Bezos wants to create a company or Elon Musk uh, create a company like, like SpaceX that can benefit in general, space exploration, I think that's a, a terrific thing. And let me just close with mentioning the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 that says we will not contaminate other worlds, nor let them contaminate us. And uh, all 120 plus countries are signatories to that. So there is a, an international agreement in place to address uh, one of the comments of a listener. And are the private space companies bound by those agreements as well? Yes, absolutely. It says very clearly any state actor, and that includes any entity uh, within the country that is a signatory to the treaty. 
Let's bring in Sam from Castro Valley into the conversation. Welcome, Sam. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, I had a, I'm 19 years old, and I live with a family of environmentalists right now. And um, I know we talked, you discussed, you know, how we can use this technology to benefit, you know, our research for climate change. But, um, well, quite frankly, we know what's going on. And we know that, like me, you know, you talk about 50 years from now, we might have the intergenerational stuff. Elon Musk talks about hope. I, I know it can help us understand climate change, but why? I mean, the, why, why, we know what's going on. Um, we have the private company in Alameda. Alameda will be underwater in, by the time, you know, 50 years from now, right? Like, so yeah. I guess for me as someone who's worried about, you know, the Berkeley Hills being Oceanside property, why? Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is a, a question that people have been grappling with for, for some time, but but the reality of climate change is making this an even more intense um, topic. And I wonder if anything has changed in your thinking um, as we've seen climate change's effects begun to be felt, um, Scott Hubbard. Um, it's clear that it is accelerating and we are at a point uh, in the effects that is coming much earlier than the predictions in the past. Um, what I would say to uh, the listener there is that uh, while the modeling and the measurements and the observations have really been very, very effective at a global scale, the capabilities to look at climate change predicted and mitigated at a regional scale have been extremely limited. And I think that's part of the hope of this next generation of Earth remote sensing satellites is to really pinpoint what's going on in various regional areas and do things to mitigate them. It takes political will, um, but supplying the information is a good step. Emily? And I think if I can add to that, I think that um, the by studying our own atmosphere um, and ocean and how they interact, we'll be able to do a lot better at predicting um, weather disasters, getting people out of the way before um, it causes loss of life. The other thing is that exploring space is not unrelated to helping mitigate climate problems here on Earth. Earth is the most complicated weather system um, in our solar system because you've got uh, rocks, land, you've got ocean and ice and air that can feel the land below it and all of those things interacting with each other plus life, which generates its own gases plus volcanic activity. Um, it's a huge number of inputs to a very complicated system. And when we go out and explore other worlds like Mars and Venus in particular, on Mars, we see geology almost without weather, uh, just with these, um, it, there is weather on Mars though. It's actually very important to predicting how a landing is going to work. And then on Venus, we have this very thick atmosphere that hardly fe feels the ground below it. And so when we study those things and we make models that can predict the behavior there, then we can take those simpler models and bring them back to Earth. And that's in fact how we 
um, began to understood be, began to understand weather and climate a lot better on Earth in the first place. And so I agree with you, caller, that the time for action on climate change is now. And I wish that the space industry could do more to make that action happen. But it's a matter of political will. It requires people like you being active um, in uh, you know speaking and raising your voice and, uh, uh, you know, uh, recruiting your friends. And I know that, that young people, I have 14 year old and 12 year old of my own, they're very um, concerned and as we all are. And, and we need political action more than we need technological action at this point. I think, you know, there's some decent uh, agreement among environmental historians that the ability to see the earth from space was actually one of the major sparks for the environmental movement, being able to see the whole earth and it's sort of fragility and, you know, the kind of blue marble effect. Um, I want to ask you uh, things you're excited about. Um, uh, Scott Hubbard, what is the the current space project that you are are most interested in seeing um, come to fruition? Mars sample return. (laughs) Uh, I've been involved in uh, trying to see that project to fruition for many decades. It's got to start with uh, perseverance. It will begin shortly drilling those uh, chalk-sized or lipstick case-sized samples that will be brought back 10 years from now. Uh, And I think we've got a great site that could have preserved the fingerprints of life. So uh, that has me greatly excited. Uh, And probably a close second will be finally the launch of the Webb Space Telescope. Yes. I I mean, you know, for those who don't know, I feel like my entire career as a journalist back into the odds, the James Webb Space Telescope uh, Hubble's replacement was uh, supposed to launch. It's been held up and held up and held up and held up. And as I understand, it's got October of this year, right? It's finally going to go up? No earlier than Halloween, uh, probably by mid, mid-November. Uh, the latest delay has to do with processing at the uh, site down there where they launched the Ariane rockets from uh, in uh, Guyana. Yeah. A um, couple comments. John writes, uh, why we should explore. It's on why we should explore space. We are space travelers. The Earth is a spaceship with a finite life support system. If we don't start working in space, we will never learn the lessons necessary to maintain a closed, finite life support system. The scale of the Earth has prevented us from learning the lessons we need to be good caretakers of our planet. Space is a great way to bring it down to human scale. As opposed to Kyler, who writes, it seems like there's really no reason to leave Earth's orbit. Did people realize this in the 60s and 70s while going to the moon and we all just forgot and we'll do it again and come to the same realization? Um, Emily, I do want to give you the chance to uh, talk about the space project that you're most excited about as well. Uh, In response to that last comment, I'll just remind people that there are people... Uh, launched to space. And then there are robots launched to space. And I'm a huge fan of robotic exploration and the distant places that it can bring us. And so the things I'm most looking forward to are seeing up close uh, worlds that we haven't really properly explored yet. So Venus is the very closest planet to us. And we've seen it very well from the outside, but we've hardly ever, not since the early 80s, sent a spacecraft below the clouds to actually look at the surface. And that was with a very steampunk steampunk, basically clockwork spacecraft sent by uh, the Russians to Venus surface. 
And we need to get down, we need to see what it looks like up close. We need to understand why Venus is so different from Earth and what its currently hellish conditions have to tell us about the future of Earth's climate. I also want to go visit up close in orbit the planets Uranus and Neptune. They're very different kinds of worlds from Jupiter and Saturn. They have their own set of moons. Neptune even has a moon that was captured originally from the Kuiper belt, it's bigger than Pluto. Um, and they're, they'd be wonderful to explore. And I want to explore them up close because we've been discovering thousands of other planets orbiting other stars. And the most common type of planet is Uranus or Neptune sized. And we don't really understand how they work. So I want to, I want to understand the exoplanets in our own backyard and uh, see what they have to tell us. They're just, they're beautiful also. I'd look forward to all the pictures. I'd also really love to get up closer to uh, some of the moons of Jupiter as well. That'd be fun. Um, Rakesh uh, writes, what legal permits do you need to launch a private rocket into space? What laws govern rocket operation? Is that, a, is that you, Emily? Would you like to answer that or, or Scott? I'm afraid Scott's much better on this one than I am. Okay. Yeah, the uh, FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, is the one that is legally chartered to issue a launch or re-entry permit. Um, there's a small office, it's probably less than 100 people that does this work. Uh, they've been asking for a long time to have that expanded. And I think now with this proliferation of purely commercial launches, uh, you may see that. Uh, if it's a government launch for a government purpose, then uh, it may be controlled uh, by NASA, it may be controlled by the, the military, National Reconnaissance Office. But if you have a, a purely commercial activity like uh, Bezos did with his recent suborbital flight, you talk to the FAA. So I know, uh, Emily, you're a fan of robotic exploration, not human exploration of the rest of the solar system. Um, and I want to ask you both uh, this question. Do you think more or less then 20 people will leave Earth's orbit in our lifetime. Oh, more for sure. You think more? Yes, absolutely. And where do you, Mars? Is that where we think we'll go or the moon? Well, I think there's going to be several different uh, environments or ecosystems for space exploration. Uh, an astronaut from the early shuttle era told me a long time ago, he said, the more people that go to space, the more that will want to go to space. So what's begun is a uh, rich person's adventure, an extreme adventure uh, that Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic are selling at 200,000 a seat, uh, will come down in price. Uh, predictions in the past have said if it got to 50,000, you'd start to see many ordinary citizens want to experience that Five minutes uh, in weightlessness. Um, there's a Las Vegas real estate entrepreneur named Bob Bigelow that has a habitat attached to the space station where he says he's going to sell uh, vacations and honeymoons in space. Um, beyond that, though, uh, we've got professional astronauts that will be going to the moon and I believe on to Mars uh, in, uh, I'm hoping, the 2030s. So uh, low Earth orbit is going to see a lot of activity um, and uh, then onto the moon and Mars. Elon would have like to have a city of a million people on Mars, but uh, that's probably way far in the future. What I think a lot of these questions miss is the fact that it doesn't need to be either or, and it's decreasingly either or 
even here on Earth. I mean, even in the last 16 months, we've all seen how people have taken their impulses to vacation elsewhere and done it virtually. We have surgeons conducting surgery across the planet using robots at the end point, <laughs> at the pointy end of the surgery with surgeons here, you know, back in their offices. I think that when we talk about human space exploration in the future, we're increasingly going to be talking about human brains and hands guiding robotic um for lack of a better word, avatars that are exploring the much more hazardous environments of the planetary surfaces or deep space. We've been talking about the future of space travel with Emily Lakdawalla, science communicator and educator, and G. Scott Hubbard, director of Stanford's Center of Excellence for Commercial Space Transportation. Alejandro tweets, I hope the future of space is defined by us all. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following the political scene. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.